1: Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. Bigfoot has captured the imaginations of countless people for centuries, not just in America, not just since the 1950s. Tales of a wild, bipedal, hairy, human-like creature have their roots in indigenous folklore and also possibly legends of medieval Europe. We can see similar descriptions in the accounts of early settlers of this country and really start to see a picture come into focus in the contemporary sightings. And thanks to ongoing reports of encounters and investigation by open-minded scientists and researchers, that picture of a Sasquatch becomes sharp. The Woodwose was a reoccurring motif in art of medieval Europe. This wild, hair-covered figure was consistently featured in paintings and carvings and engravings, from the ceilings of churches and cathedrals to portraits of the rich to families' coats of arms and their crests. This image could be found. It can be found in the literature from that time as well, including the first known translations of the Bible into English, Wycliffe's Bible and the Romance of Alexander. In addition to a depiction of a legendary creature, Woodwose was also a surname, which I found very interesting. It survives to this day as the surname Wodehouse or Woodhouse. The Woodwose means Wild Man of the Woods. In their artistic renditions, the Woodwose is human-like but Wild. It lives in the forest and avoids civilization. It is covered in shaggy hair, save its face, hands, and feet. And sometimes its knees, because medieval fashion. It was oftentimes in some form of struggle or standoff, whether surrounded by hunting dogs or fending off knights in armor or in the midst of wooing, a.k.a kidnapping a human lady and being speared to death for his for his troubles the woodwose was a representation of something not quite human not total animal a fascination of wilderness and savagery maybe a cautionary tale to respect civilized society Perhaps it was inspired by the mythologies of forest-dwelling gods and figures from centuries prior. Perhaps it was inspired by events and experiences more current to their times. It is odd, though, that it wasn't just local folklore. And it is odd that these depictions are so similar in their physical features and behaviors from a book called The King's Mirror, written in 1250 in Norway. It once happened in that country that a living creature was caught in the forest, as to which no one could say definitely whether it was a man or some other animal, for no one could get a word from it or be sure that it understood human speech. It had the human shape, however, in every detail, both as to hands and face and feet. But the entire body was covered with hair as the beasts are, and down the back it had a long, coarse mane like that of a horse, which fell to both sides and trailed along the ground when the creature stooped in walking. And not just in Norway, but wild man interpretations could be found in numerous countries beyond the confines of England, Germany. Had a, has a rich tradition of wild man folklore. The wilder man were often depicted as hairy forest dwelling beings who lived on the fringes of society and are found in many Germanic folktales and their art and literature. Actually, the drawing that convinced me to look into the Woodwos at all was created sometime around 1503 by German artist Hans Burkmeier or Burkmeier. And I will put it up here on the screen so that you can see it. If you are watching the YouTube, it's called The Fight in the Forest and depicts a fight in the forest between a very large woodwose and a few, shall we say, uh, struggling knights. <laughs> Such an interesting piece of art from so early on, don't you think? 1500s, Yeah. France has La Homme Sauvage, a primitive and wild figure living in the woods. Uh, Both Norway and Sweden have beings known as Skogsra, which loosely translated to forest spirits and are depicted as wild and elusive creatures with human-like appearance. Additionally, Austria, Switzerland, Russia, Spain, Portugal, and others all had their own folklore centering around these figures. Despite the location and culture, fascination with the wild man of the woods was a common thread. You don't have to agree or believe with me that the folklore of the wood represents an early history of Sasquatch. But coincidentally, An ocean away in cultures vastly different from Europeans and separate from each other. Long before the first Europeans arrived on our shores, many Native American tribes had their own legends about a giant, bipedal, fuzzy, and elusive being who lived in the woods. First Nation stories about Sasquatch lay a very compelling foundation for where we are at today with this phenomenon. Now, tribes of the Northeast and the Southwest are not typically associated with legends of Bigfoot. However, the tribes of the Northwest and the Southeast are. These areas happen to be very active for Bigfoot activity in the modern day. In the Southeast, the Seminole tribe of Florida had legends of what is currently known as skunk ape. The Chittimaca of Louisiana had stories of a creature known as the Latish, a large, hairy being that dwells in the swamps and wilderness. Could be a skunk ape. The Choctaw had Nalusa philea. The Cherokee called their creature Yawi, And the Muscogee had Hatuto. All of them believed to be giant, wild, hairy Man like lives in the woods. The uh, Pacific Northwest is a whole nother ballpark. Washington State does hold the record for most reported Bigfoot sightings and encounters, and the amount of tribes that inhabited the area and passed down stories of Sasquatch or something very similar to it is astounding. Many of the Coast Salish and other tribes in the area had traditional stories of this creature. Uh, the names may all be very different, but the descriptions are absolutely incredible. Let me just give you a little sample here of what I mean. The Chehalis tribe have stories of Chowanito, resembles a Sasquatch inhabits the remote forested areas. The lower Elwha Klallam tribe talk about Quatet, who is described as large, hairy, and human-like. The Squaxin Island people refer to Stetal, the guardian of the forest and animals. The Kwakoodle people of British Columbia have Zunukwa and Bukwus, which means wild woman and wild man of the woods. The Hoopa of Humboldt County tell tales of Oma, a huge hairy, stinky monster. And some people of the Halkamalum language spoke of Saksak, which means wild man, Sasquet, which means hairy man, or Sasquahavas, which means wild, hairy man. These terms are important, as they are thought to have inspired the Anglicized term Sasquatch. Kind of cool. And I, I sincerely apologize for my mispronunciation of all of those terms. Now, <clears throat> while some of the First Nations do speak to this man like creature as more of a spiritual or supernatural being, others seem to be talking about a real creature, an animal considered brethren of other familiar animals, as well as brethren of man depicted standing side by side with other flesh and blood creatures in petroglyphs stacked right in line with foxes and ravens on totem poles. There is something so curious about the inclusion of all of these real-life, flesh-and-blood animals that the Native Americans were so familiar with encountering, only to then throw in this one creature that only existed in their imaginations? Or masks and carvings depicting an ape-like face with the extended brow and the pushed lips, sagittal crest, and hairy, hairy, hairy. Some might ask why Native Americans might have created a ceremonial mask depicting an ape-like creature in a country that does not and never has had, to our knowledge, any Native ape populations. Or a wall painting of a crying hairy man, sad because he is alone, because man is afraid of him. Or describe... Such specific patterns of behavior, such as howling and whistling, tree knocking, nocturnal activities, rock throwing, and a reclusiveness in regards to humans, or a foul odor associated with this imaginary folktale. Or why some tribes thought of these figures as other Native American tribes, albeit hairier, but human enough to call them people. Some might ask why. It just seems that there is a a really compelling consistency throughout all of these tribes' tales. And like I mentioned before, yes, not all of them solely concern themselves with a living flesh-and-blood creature. Many of them reference Bigfoot as quite the supernatural entity equipped with the ability to shapeshift and read minds. Many legends speak of it as a, a guardian spirit to the earth, to humankind, to animal kind, something that walks between two worlds. But throughout... There is this through line of a large, bipedal, man-like, hairy being. Supernatural gifts or no. Native Americans often imbued supernatural qualities uh, to all sorts of animals. And a fox talking in one of their stories doesn't make the fox any less real. I really do hope to uh, get deeper into the Native American lore that predates the modern-day interpretation, but for the rest of today's show, I really uh, wanted to take a crack at a timeline of events and and people and discoveries that that took place in a more recent sense and just bring all of us up to speed to where we are at here in the current day. So... Let me take you back to just before the turn of the last century. Prior to Bigfoot becoming a household name, folks were encountering, according to reports in local newspapers, hairy, bipedal, and enormous unknown animals. Numerous newspaper write-ups called the animal they referred to a wild man or something similar. In a banger daily wig and courier, it recounts the whistling wild boy of the woods. That was from 1838, excuse me. A McKean County Miner article in 1878 references a wild man of the woods. And what's what's really important, there, there's so many others, but what's really important to me about the stories of the 1800s is this. Bigfoot Uh, as a term and concept, would not be used until 1958. Sasquatch, as a term and concept, would not be used until the 1920s. But there are still these reports from folks who who didn't know what a Sasquatch was, out in the wilderness, just trying to go about their 1800s life, who encountered something that sounds a lot like the woodwose or wild man of medieval Europe, the Buckwuss and Oma of native legends, the Bigfoot of today. Let's take a quick break and do a word from our sponsor before we get into it. September is almost over, and I want to take a second to talk about self-care. When it comes to making an impression, proper grooming is essential to looking and feeling your best when you walk into a room. That's why the sponsors of today's show, Manscaped, are committed to helping men around the world walk and talk with some swagger this season with the best grooming tools on the market. Join the 9 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and enjoy this offer. 20% off plus free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. Don't neglect your beautiful self and get right this summer with Manscaped. There has been a smell reported with Bigfoot. A stink, if you will. Perhaps, now I'm just saying, but perhaps that is why he is so elusive. He does not wish to offend your delicate nostrils. To test this theory, find you a gifting rock and lovingly place the Performance Package 4.0 down and then scoot. The rest will take care of itself. Inside the Performance Package 4.0, the big guy will find the Crop Preserver Groin Deodorant and Crop Reviver Groin Spray. With the newfound confidence, he is sure to come out of hiding. I am full of ideas just like this. Take me on your next Sasquatch investigation. Manscaped supports the Paranormal Girl podcast so much, they provided an exclusive offer for my listeners. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PNG. Feel like yourself again. Smell amazing. Take charge of your life with Manscaped. The Memphis Inquirer gives an account of a wild man recently discovered in Arkansas. It appears that during March last, Mr. Hamilton of Greene County, Arkansas, while hunting with an acquaintance, observed a drove of cattle in a state of apparent alarm, evidently pursued by some dreaded enemy. Halting for the purpose, they soon discovered as the animals fled by them that they were followed by an animal bearing the unmistakable likeness of humanity. He was of a gigantic stature, the body being covered with hair, and on the head was long locks that fairly enveloped his neck and shoulders. The wild man, after looking at them deliberately for a short time, turned and ran away with great speed, leaping from 12 to 14 feet at a time. His footprints measured 13 inches each. This singular creature, the inquirer says, has long been known traditionally in St. Francis, Green, and Poinsett Counties, Arkansas. Sportsmen and hunters have described him 17 years since. A planter, indeed, saw him very recently but withheld his information lest he should not be credited until the account of Mr. Hamilton and his friend placed the existence of the animal beyond cavil. And this was a write-up in the Weekly Arkansas Gazette out of Little Rock, Arkansas, written in May of 1851. It ends with, So well authenticated have now become the accounts of this creature that an expedition is organizing in Memphis by Colonel David C. Cross and Dr. Sullivan to scout for him. Um, this So this is one of the early newspaper uh, accounts of a sighting that I found. Um, I found another one here uh, that was published 18 years later in 1869. Shortly following the incident, a hunter in California kept returning to his camp to find the ashes and burnt sticks from his fire had been scattered around. He could see what looked like imprints of a man's bare feet around his campsite. He claimed the prints were enormous. Now I resolved to lay for the barefooted visitor. I took a position on a hillside about 60 or 70 feet from the fire and hid in the brush. I waited and watched. Suddenly, I was startled by a shrill whistle. I saw the object of my solicitude standing beside my fire walking around. It was in the image of a man, but it could not have been human. I was never so benumbed with astonishment before. The creature, whatever it was, stood full five feet high and was disproportionately broad and square at the shoulders with arms of great length. The legs were short and the body long. The head was small compared with the rest of the creature and appeared to be set upon his shoulders without a neck. And the man also notes that the creature was covered in dark brown and cinnamon-colored hair. He goes on, As I looked, he threw his head back and whistled again, then stopped and grasped a stick from the fire. Then he swung around and around until the fire on the end had gone out. Then he repeated the maneuver. Fifteen minutes I sat and watched him as he whistled and scattered my fire about. I could have easily put a bullet through his head, but why should I kill him? Having amused himself apparently all he desired with my fire, he started to go. Having gone a short distance, he returned and was joined by another, a female, unmistakably. Then they both turned and walked past me within 20 yards of where I sat and disappeared into the brush. In 1884, there is a story of an alleged Smaller Bigfoot found along uh, captured along some train tracks in British Columbia. It was described standing 4 7, weighing 127 pounds and covered in glossy hair, save his hands, feet, and face, and had very long arms. The story goes that the creature tried to run up a steep embankment to get away after they blew the train whistle and stopped, but was Knocked out cold when someone from the train hit him in the head with a rock. <laughs> Why? It's a terrible story anyway. But then it gets worse. Supposedly, as they transported what they were referring to as Jacko, it died. And then the body was just gone. Not not that it disappeared or anything. Just there, there's There's no real ending to the story. Nobody knows. What happened after? Uh, I sincerely, sincerely don't like that story at all. I can only think of one story I dislike more. This one actually hurt my heart a little bit. (laughs) Lake Minnewonka, once known as Devil's Lake, is located in Banff National Park in Alberta, Canada. In 1895, many people out fishing along the shoreline noticed footprints of gargantuan size. They were estimated at 19 inches long. Early the next year, a line of footprints the same size were again found near the shoreline. The person who found them decided to follow them. They first led to a hole broken through in the ice of the lake before trailing off into the woods. In the spring, a trapper noticed a large creature walking in the distance toward the woods. The trapper watched as it ducked to avoid a tree branch, and then he later inspected the area close up. The branch in question was measured at seven feet above the ground, so... For it to duck to avoid running into it, the creature had to be pretty dang tall. Um, In late summer that year, two prospectors saw what they thought was a great bear. And so they did the only uh, logical thing to do to a perfectly innocent animal who is not bothering anyone. Uh, They shot at it. (laughs) To their surprise, though... The creature stood up on two legs and pointed at him and said, You boys about to be swimming with the fishes! (laughs) I wish an Italiano uh, mafioso Sasquatch would would make this story uh, so much better. No, what it did do was stand up and let out a most horrible shriek before running off and disappearing into the forest. It continued to scream from within the woods. Early the following year, dogs of the area started barking their faces off and raising the alarm. And when resident rifle owners came running with their rifles (laughs) to see what all the fuss was about, they, uh, they spotted the creature just standing outside their settlement, minding its own business, Guess what? Once again, they fired (laughs) and the Sasquatch ran away screaming into the forest. He wouldn't be spotted again until fall of the following year by a man fishing along the shore. At 40 to 50 yards away, the man watched as the creature bared its teeth and growled at the man. I wonder why. So he shot it. (laughs) Once again... It ran away, screaming bloody murder into the forest. This time, it's believed certain that the bullet hit the creature as spots of blood would be found later on some of the trees. Winter of that year, two Irish wolfhounds were found dead just outside the settlement, surrounded by a bunch of 19-inch-long tracks. In spring the following year, a man in his cabin spotted the Sasquatch eyeballing his horses in the corral. As the Bigfoot stood admiring, the man shot him, hitting him at least three times, causing him to fall to the ground at one point as he escaped once again into the woods. More tracks were seen that summer, and then in the winter of that year, a man on horseback spotted the creature from a distance. Oddly enough, he noted that it seemed to walk with a bad limp. The man watched it until it disappeared into the tree line and then shot it for old time's sake. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) The last man didn't shoot anything. But that would be the uh, last time the Lake Minnewonka wild man was sighted. He was never seen again. The only good thing about telling this horrible story is that it brings us to the 1900s. This is where it gets really exciting. The strangest story to come from the Cascade Mountains was brought to Kelso today by Marlon Smith, his son, Roy Smith, Fred Beck, Gabe Lefeffer, and John Peterson, who encountered the fabled mountain devils or mountain gorillas of Mount St. Helens this week, shooting one of them, because why not, and being attacked throughout the night by rock bombardments of the beasts, per the Portland Oregonians write-up on July 13, 1924. There are variations to this story. But the gist of it is that these five gold prospectors who had been working in the Mount St. Helens and Lewis River area of Washington State for about six years and had previously come upon very large footprints and here and there would hear a strange whistling or thumpings. One day they were gathering water in a spring when they suddenly spotted a strange creature about 100 yards away. They would take a shot at it. It disappeared and then reappeared even further away. They shot at it again, and and then it it really disappeared. And I think this rude interaction peeved off Bigfoot as that evening he would return with a few of his homies and throw down. As the men hid inside of their cabin, they could hear large rocks landing against their walls, then body slams against the door, then tap dancing on their roof. At one point, it's reported that a large hairy arm reached inside the cabin through a crack in the logs, feeling around for an axe leaning up against the wall. The men defended themselves throughout the course of the night by shooting their guns through the walls, door, and ceiling. The attack would end just before daylight as the men ventured slowly outside. Fred Beck spotted one of the creatures about 80 yards away, standing alongside the edge of a canyon. Before anything else could happen, he whipped out his rifle and took three shots at it, causing it to topple over the edge and fall 400 feet into the gorge. Presumably to its death. The men then made haste the heck out of there. The Oregonian reported that the miners were so upset by the incidents of the night they left the cabin without making breakfast. <laughs> Y'all know how men be eaten at breakfast now, okay? Uh, A forest ranger assigned to the area later told investigators that he ran into the men as they fled the forest. He said he'd never seen grown men more frightened. Another very odd story from 1924 is about a man named Albert Ostman who claims he was kidnapped by Bigfoot. Camping and looking for gold out at the head of Toba Inlet, British Columbia... Ostman claimed he kept waking up to his campsite being disturbed and food being taken. After the third time this happened, he climbed into a sleeping bag, fully clothed, rifle by his side, and peepers wide open, ready to catch the thief in the act. But then he fell asleep, only to awaken as someone picked him up inside of his sleeping bag, tossed him over their shoulder like a sack of potatoes, and began walking. In a later interview, Albert spoke to being very confused as he was being carried, not really understanding what was happening. He said it felt like he was being carried maybe on horseback before realizing that couldn't be. At one point, he attempted to retrieve his knife in order to cut himself out, but the way he was positioned in the bag, the knife was pinned beneath him and he couldn't get a hold of it. Ostman says he could hear his assailant breathing heavily, and he could tell he was being carried up a steep incline. After a couple of hours of this trek, Ostman was dumped to the ground, and when he crawled out of his bag, he was staring into the faces of four Sasquatches, two parents and two small ones. He said he spent six days as their captive attempting to leave at one point and being coerced by Papa Bigfoot to remain. The thought of shooting the big one did cross Ostman's mind, but according to him, after he had watched a film about someone who shot at a large gorilla, uh, who just kept getting up and growing more enraged, he said in an interview, "...suppose I shoot the fella and it just make him mad, then I will be a goner. There must be some other way." And when it became obvious that he wasn't meant to be their next meal... He wondered if he hadn't been brought there as a prospective mate for the young female. He described a very powerful odor that they gave off, something akin to a bunkhouse. He's, he's got a pretty thick accent, uh, so I think that's what he says in that interview. Uh, it might have meant an outhouse. I don't know. His translation... Might have been lacking just across the board. Uh, Later, he would describe the Mama Bigfoot's breasts hanging like fur gloves. (laughs) So, so I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Ostman would finally make his escape when the male adult grabbed a box of snuff from Albert's hands and emptied the entire contents of it into his mouth. When his eyes started to roll back and he became obviously sick, Albert began running. He says the adult female started shrieking and chasing after him, but turned around when Albert fired one warning shot over her head. And then he raced down the canyon, like his life depended on it it probably did at that point his story uh wouldn't really land in the public space for another 30 years albert claims he had tried to tell it before but quit trying because people just always laughed and assumed that he was drinking it's a pretty incredible story um Reading other people's retelling of it makes it seem even more incredible, but when you hear him tell his own story and uh, include all of those little details to it, it's just, I don't know, it just hits differently. Uh, check it out for yourself. Link below. In 1929, J.W. Burns, a writer and school teacher on the Chehalis Reserve in British Columbia, compiled and published local stories in a series of Canadian newspaper articles of the wild, hairy giants in the area that the tribe members he spoke with maintained were very real. Burns noticed how similar the names given to the creature by the surrounding tribes were, combined them, and began using his invented word in all of his articles, thus coining what would become a household term moving forward, Sasquatch. Jeannie Chapman went about her household chores in her family's little Ruby Creek house while her young children played in a field out back. It was 1941. The Chapman's home was situated adjacent to a field bordered by a set of railway tracks and near the foot of a mountain about 30 miles up the Fraser River from agassive British Columbia. It was a clear and sunny afternoon. All was well. Suddenly, one of her sons ran up to her proclaiming a cow was coming out of the woods. Because he seemed alarmed about it, Jeannie went to take a look. Upon seeing the creature, she's like, nah, silly goose that's. Not a cow that's a that's a big old bear. She called uh, to her younger children to come as the bear moved closer as the creature moved onto the train tracks that bordered the property though she got a good look at it and quickly realized hmm that's that's not a cow that's not a bear that there is a dang hairy bipedal thing." for a gigantic man covered in light brown hair, not fur, as she would later describe it. And I'll, I'll tell you the rest of the story as you've already heard it, if you're familiar with the Ruby Creek incident. And then I want to share some really interesting details that I learned later. Uh, so the Sasquatch was getting close Heading directly toward the home, she grabbed up her kids and began hauling butt toward town. Uh, This whole situation was unbeknownst to her husband, George, who, after getting off work at the railroad, took his usual way back home, walking along the train tracks. It was shortly before 6 that evening. Upon arriving home, he immediately noticed their battered-in woodshed door and enormous bare footprints all over the place. Scared for his family, he called out. No answer. He runs through the house. No sign of them. He happened upon their four sets of footprints— heading toward town along the river and followed them far enough to be convinced that they hadn't been followed, as these were the only prints that he was seeing, so he returned to their home to further investigate. In the woodshed, he found a 55-gallon tub of salted fish had been tipped and broken into, and a number of long brown hairs caught along the top of the doorway above his head. After this incident, the Chapmans would return home though not for long, as fresh footprints returned every night for a week, and on a couple of occasions, the Chapmans were awakened at 2 in the morning when their dogs would suddenly go crazy over something they were seeing or smelling. So it was all just too unnerving, and the family would move out. I don't blame them. Uh, This incident would later be investigated interesting details that I later learned, uh, Jeannie described the creature she saw standing about seven and a half feet tall, uh, using various fence and line posts that it had been standing by in the field for comparison. It had a small head, almost um, uh, almost absent, very thick set neck. Its body was entirely human in its shape, though incredibly thick through its chest, its arms were exceptionally long, its shoulders were wide with no breasts apparent, its hair was about four inches in length all over, and the parts of its body not covered in hair that she could see, the hands and face, she described as darker than the hair, appearing almost black. Pretty good description. Second interesting detail, in a later interview, Jeanie made mention that the creature made an awful funny noise. When asked by investigators if she could imitate to everyone's surprise, her husband suddenly did so, saying he had heard it too, but in the nights following the incident, the sound he imitated was described as a strange gurgling whistle. A very interesting detail Uh, Before Jeannie and her kids ran, she had one of her kids go inside to grab a blanket while she stood her ground outside watching the creature grow closer. When her son returned with the blanket, she held it up, blocking the creature's view of all of them as they made their escape. Ivan Sanderson asked her about this detail later, leading her with a question about the native belief that it was bad luck to see a Sasquatch, and so was she shielding her children from doing so? She didn't take the bait. She would say she'd heard white people talking about that, but hadn't been taught that by any of her people. Her thought in using the blanket to shield was that if the creature was after one of her kids, it might be... Uh, tricked if it didn't see all of them leave and might go into the house looking instead of follow her out, and that obviously worked. And the final detail, it adds nothing to this incident, but was shocking still to read. Within three years of the incident, all three of the Chapman children died, two from drowning, and one from an illness, and then, shortly after an interview Jeannie and George had with Ivan Sanderson eighteen years later, both of them also died by drowning in a rowboat accident. just is so so freaking sad, dude that's I don't know that was just very shocking and and kind of it's just an odd detail, and i I never heard it before. Um, all of this information came from Ivan T. Sanderson's write-up in True Magazine in 1960. Speculation about the existence of the Yeti had been growing since an early reported sighting of one in 1925. This speculation would be reignited in 1951 when Eric Shipton and Michael Ward, during an Everest expedition, came across a series of footprints in the snow on a glacier that they were traversing in the Menlung Basin of Nepal. Shipton would take a few photographs two of some of the more indistinct prints and two of the most detailed and distinct of the group. Using Ward's booted foot for comparison in one of the photos, the tracks measure about 12 to 13 inches long, and it was noted by Ward that it was nearly twice as wide as his own print. And what they could tell about the prints, they were very large, had a definite imprint of a big toe that was broader and shorter than the remaining four toes, and it was clear to them they hadn't been made by any animal known to live in that part of the Himalayas. And we're not talking about the Yeti today, but mentioning this event because it wasn't just speculation that was ignited. This event ignited Yeti fever around the world these photographs were highly publicized and would inspire further Yeti expeditions in the 50s and 60s. And the craze about the abominable snowman throughout the 50s would give way to America's Bigfoot craze. Now, 1953 marks the year that Renee de Hinden immigrated from Switzerland to Alberta, Canada. Renee would spend 50 years of his life hunting for Bigfoot and become one of the key figures in the field. He is included in what is known as the Four Horsemen of Bigfoot, along with Peter Byrne, Dr. Grover Krantz, and John Green. Rene was feisty. (laughs) We'll call him feisty. He uh, was not a fan of the skeptics or the outright foolish or hoaxers of this phenomenon, often insulting people with awesome names like boffins and deadheads. (laughs) You boffin! The 50s was a very busy decade for Bigfoot, so... Uh, let's let's get into this and, and just bear with me. In October of 1955, a highway worker and experienced hunter named William Rowe was on a hike to an abandoned mine on Micah Mountain in British Columbia. As he approached the mine, he spotted what he thought was a grizzly bear messing around in a bush about 75 yards away. Though he had his rifle with him, he chose not to shoot the animal because he had no way to get it out. Instead, he sat down on a rock to watch and waited out. A moment later, the bear stepped out in the open, and Roe realized, oh, not a bear. My first impression was of a huge man, about six feet tall, about three feet wide, and probably weighing somewhere near 300 pounds. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown silver-tipped hair, but as it came closer, I saw by its breasts that it was female." And yet its torso was not curved like a female's. Its broad frame was straight from shoulder to hip. Its arms were much thicker than a man's arms and longer, reaching almost to its knees. Its feet were broader proportionately than a man's, about five inches wide at the front and tapering to much thinner heels. When it walked, it placed the heel of its foot down first, and I could see the gray-brown skin or hide on the soles of its feet. It came to the edge of the bush I was hiding in within 20 feet of me and squatted down on its haunches. Reaching out its hands, it pulled the branches of bushes toward it and stripped the leaves with its teeth. Its lips curled flexibly around the leaves as it ate. I was close enough to see that its teeth were white and even. The head was higher at the back than at the front. The nose was broad and flat. The lips and chin protruded farther than its nose. But the hair that covered it, leaving bare only the parts of its face around the mouth, nose, and ears, made it resemble an animal as much as a human. None of this hair, even on the back of its head, was longer than an inch, and that on its face was much shorter. Its ears were shaped like a human's ears, but its eyes were small and black like a bear's, and its neck also was unhuman, thicker and shorter than any man's I had ever seen. And that's that's just a description that you're going to hear over and over and over again. This short, thick, almost absent neck on these creatures. Um, As he watched, Ro wondered if uh, he might be seeing some actor in a costume as part of a a film being shot in the area. So he was trying to be logical about it, but he says the more that he watched, he decided it would have been impossible to fake something like this. Um, he continues, finally, the wild thing must have gotten my scent for it looked directly at me through an opening in the brush a look of amazement crossed its face. It looked so comical at the moment I had to grin. Still in a crouched position, it backed up three or four short steps, then straightened up to its full height and started to walk rapidly back the way it had come. For a moment, it watched me over its shoulder as it went, not exactly afraid, but as though it wanted no contact with anything strange. The thought came to me that if I shot it— I would probably have a specimen of great interest to scientists the world over. I had heard stories of the Sasquatch, the giant hairy Indians that live in the legends of British Columbia Indians, and also many claim are still, in fact, alive today. Maybe this was a Sasquatch, I told myself. I leveled my rifle. The creature was still walking rapidly away, again turning its head to look in my direction. I lowered the rifle. Although I have called the creature it, I felt now that it was a human being, and I knew I would never forgive myself if I killed it. And Rose says, as the Sasquatch reached another patch of brush before disappearing into it, it threw its head back and made a noise sounding half laugh and half language. He would see it once more as it came out on another ridge a couple hundred yards away. It tipped its head again and produced the same noise, and then it disappeared for good. And this information comes from a signed affidavit. William Rowe entered on August 26, 1957, at the urging of John Green. A year before that, though, John Green skeptical and newspaper man was sitting in his newspaper office when Rene DeHinden waltzed in inquiring about Sasquatch. He had been hearing all of these stories on the radio about the hunt for the abominable snowman in Tibet and was told there's no need to travel that far to find one. Go to British Columbia instead. So he did. When he showed up in front of John Green, excitable and feisty about Bigfoot. Though he thought the phenomenon was a load of crapola, Green still knew what his readers uh, would be interested in and wanted to sell papers. So he published an article about DeHinden and his interest. Publishing that opened some floodgates. I don't think Green was expecting. After it came out, he received numerous letters from readers about their experiences and a tip about the 41 incident in Ruby Creek and More than happy to chase yet another popular story, and being the investigative journalist he was, he went about looking into the case. And after combing through all of the documentation and sketches and print casts, signed affidavits, and speaking with the son of the sheriff's deputy who had been assigned to investigate the case, Green became a believer. He just did. And uh, you know what like I think that's it that is important to um uh, keep in mind those who are actually willing to look at all of the evidence involved with these incidents and sighting reports I am willing to bet most of them aren't able to help but walk away with this knowing that there is something undeniable to it it is those who refused to even look at it, that remained skeptical. Anyway, so uh, that's what happened with Green. <laughs> he would go on to start a database of sightings. He would write numerous books on the subject and uh, actually be one of the first proponents for the idea that Bigfoot was an undiscovered primate living in North America. Kind of cool. August 27, 1958, near Bluff Creek in Northern California, a bulldozer operator named Jerry Crew parked his car near his machine. As he approached the bulldozer, he noticed a few prints in the leveled earth, but thought nothing of them. Then he hopped up in his machine to start his work for the day and stopped short when he looked down and noticed many more footprints all around him. They were giant and manlike. "'and were pressed deeply into the dirt. "'Crew hopped back off his machine, back into his car, "'and began driving back toward the construction site's main camp "'to report what he was seeing to his foreman, Wilbur Shorty Wallace.' As he relayed the situation to Shorty, other crew members started to gather around, listening in, and began volunteering their own stories of encountering giant, human-like prints they had found while out working on other sites. Similar tracks had been found at another Wallace Works site along the Mad River, seen by 25 of the workers. Yet more had been found up the coast in Trinidad. It was Shorty who suggested that perhaps their unseen track maker from that morning was the same culprit of other disturbances that had been noticed at their site, relaying an incident that occurred the summer prior where a 450-pound drum of diesel fuel had gone missing, leaving behind its imprint and the imprints of large feet in the dirt. The drum was found later at the bottom of a gully with not a ripped leaf or broken twig in sight, contributing to the belief that it had been pitched and not rolled in. Or the 700-pound spare road-grading machine tire that had been pushed into a ditch. That one had been blamed on vandals, but what if it wasn't? There was also... A report of steel culverts disappearing and later being found where no machine could possibly have put them. It was all so odd. A real mystery. The men debated who or what was causing all of the trouble before heading back to work, but continued to discuss and debate, taking up a label for their mystery track maker, Bigfoot. A few weeks later, a fresh set of tracks appeared along Bluff Creek Road. Some of the workers inspected them, ultimately declaring them to be neither faked or those of bears. Crew would take them seriously enough to trace one of the footprints on a piece of paper and take the rendering to a taxidermist named Bob Titmus. Bob, not really seeing the value in an undetailed sketch, instructed Crew on how to make a plaster cast. Crew went back out, successfully made the cast of a 16-inch long print. One account reports that Bob, after inspecting it in person, wasn't too impressed with the cast, suggesting that maybe the other workers were just playing pranks on one another. Crew, however, was more certain than ever that these were genuine tracks. There were too many of them. They were too deeply impressed. Their detail was too fine. Now, around this time, a journalist from the Humboldt Times named Andrew Genzoli caught wind of the new tracks by a letter submitted to him by a wife of one of the workers. Uh, Dismissive at first, he would end up publishing the letter when he came up short for content. Maybe we have a relative of the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, our own wandering willy of witch Genzoli would write alongside the letter. And much to Genzoli's surprise, this little nothing article took off in a big way. Genzoli and fellow Humboldt Times journalist Betty Allen would publish follow up articles about the footprints, introducing the name the workers had given the trackmaker Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Uh, in October, Jen Zoli would meet with crew and arranged to have his picture taken, along with the plaster cast, which would run on the front page of the October 6th issue of the Humboldt Times, next to an article Jen Zoli had pinned. The men are often convinced that they are being watched. However, they believe it is not an unfriendly watching. Nearly every new piece of work finds tracks on it the next morning, as though the thing had a supervisory interest in the project, he would write. Ray Wallace would also be interviewed uh, for the article claiming that he had measured the stride length to be 50 inches while at a stately pace and nearly 10 feet while running. Bob Titmus had also been. Contacted, who had since visited the site of the tracks uh, in person and felt quite a bit more certain that they were genuine. John Green would travel two thousand miles with his wife to see the tracks at Bluff Creek. As they closed in, uh, traveling the mountainous dirt roads, they got lost. They did not make it to the site of the tracks that everyone else was going crazy over. However, after pulling over, discovered a set. Along the roadside. And Green felt what they had found was genuine and noted their similarity to what had been found in Ruby Creek, wondering how people 2,000 miles apart, faking both sets of tracks, could manage to come up with something so similar. And down the road, in response to the claims that the tracks had all been the hoaxy doing of Ray Wallace, Green would say the fact is that the tracks exist, and no human being has yet proven to be able to replicate the tracks at the depth recorded. I'd like to know what's making the bloody tracks. He certainly did want to know. So much so that following the Wallace family claim that Ray was Bigfoot and Bigfoot was Ray, he would back the Willow Creek Museum in the offer of a $100,000 reward to anyone who could convincingly demonstrate how the Bluff Creek tracks had been made using carved wooden feet, with which it was claimed they all had been made. And the offer still stands today, according to Dr. Meldrum's book, With No Takers. And it's hard to understand why. All the track maker has to do is don the wooden feet, create footprints at the depth. The originals were recorded, which is an estimated pressure of about 800 pounds, according to geologist and geophysicist Dr. Maurice Tripp. And they would need to provide only a 50 to 60 inch stride, both on flat ground, but also going up and down 75-degree inclines per the original track maker's route. They should also presumably be able to perform this feat in the dark. Piece of cake, <laughs> right? Um, this was a lot on Bluff Creek, but uh, I really wanted to set the stage for you. Bluff Creek would come up again in a pretty big way about a decade later, when John Green would bring Roger Patterson to the area and Patterson, along with Bob Gimlin, would return a month later to shoot a little flick that I'm sure no one has ever heard of. It's it's only one of the most uh, controversial and analyzed films in the history of film. But, you know, who's keeping tabs? Not going into detail on this one uh, because we, we got to keep moving, but I, I can't not mention it. In 1963, Harlan Ford encountered what would become known as the Cajun Sasquatch, the Louisiana Wookie, the Honey Island Swamp Monster. <laughs> I bought a house in Slidell uh, about two miles from Honey Island Swamp not too long ago, so it was my very own local lore. Oh, Harlan uh, also captured 8mm footage of the creature that would be released after his death in 1980. In 1964, a Forest Service timber cruiser named Pat Graves discovered some really outstanding prints on Laird Meadow Road near Bluff Creek. A day after the discovery, Pat would mention Uh, them during a conversation with Roger Patterson, and Patterson would make a French exit, hurry to the location to see if he could see them, spot them for himself, and he did, and they were amazing. He would go on to cast a 17-inch long, 7.5-inch wide print that was presumed to be from a male specimen and was similar to tracks that had been found in the area in the previous five years. These footprints were sunk an inch and a half into the ground, and it was evident of a flexible, malleable foot seen in the parts of the toe prints which curled around rocks and pebbles the foot had stepped on. In 1967, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin shot a video of a Sasquatch in Bluff Creek. Lame. It gets its own episode. (laughs) We'll, We'll cover it. Don't fret. 1967 would also be the year that an extensive trackway of footprints were found and cast along Blue Creek Mountain Road, also near Bluff Creek. I am seeing a distinct correlation here. The tracks would measure 15 inches long and were noteworthy for their clear detail, most of them anyway. Uh, there were also a ton of not-so-great tracks nearby, which, if taken into account, would bring the total estimated number of tracks at this site to over a thousand. These Blue Creek Mountain tracks were examined by John Green and Rene DeHinden. Here's an odd one for you. <clears throat> After three days of closely examining a big, hairy, primatish body in a block of ice— Bernard Hubbellman's father of cryptozoology, and researcher Ivan T. Sanderson walked away convinced they had just been staring at a real Bigfoot body. They observed pores, individual hairs, whirls of suspended blood above a mangled left arm. It was 1968, and Frank Hansen, showcaser of said body, would tell a bunch of different stories as to how he came about procuring said body. Showcase. The researchers would return for another visit and opportunity to examine this fine specimen, only to discover the body they now peered down at was quite different a carefully prepared mannequin of sorts not nearly the biological entity they had claimed to witness previously. There was suspicion that Hansen had become unsettled following the researcher's initial examination, that for some reason the authorities would become involved and he would be in some massive doo-doo for having some unidentified corpse on his hands. So, so he switched it out. That's, that's the theory, conspiracy thought. I don't know. Uh, If the earlier biological specimen ever existed, who knows what might have happened to what was known as the Minnesota Iceman. The discovery of the Cripplefoot tracks in Bossburg, Washington in 1969 would be Grover Krantz's watershed moment. Like John Green. At Ruby Creek, Grover would become far more convinced that Bigfoot was a real creature after analyzing these particular prints. Doing so and arriving at that conclusion would also compel him to take a closer look at the Patterson Gimlin tape, something he originally had said looked hoaxy. You know, little hoaxy. Uh, upon closer analysis of the cripplefoot foot prints, he noticed very notable, unique anatomical features and made the observations that whatever had made the prints, aside from having some distinct protrusions out of only one of its feet, also had something called a compliant gait, which is when the knees don't lock. Um, it's more glidy than that, you know, which is a feature often reported during sightings, uh, which we also see in the PGF. This is something he could just tell by studying the prints. He also observed something that supports the sheer weight and size of these creatures by studying a 44-inch high barbed wire fence where the route the trackmaker had taken crossed with ease without breaking its stride. And because I am a curious sort, I did some of my own research, okay? Lee is 6'1", and I own a measuring tape. (laughs) The conclusion of my experiment is that my tall-ass partner can easily handle stepping over something 32 inches high, any higher than that, say, a 44-inch barbed wire fence, and there's going to be issues. (laughs) Three days... After the Bosburg tracks were discovered near the town dump, Rene DeHinden would arrive, snapping as many photos as he could of any untrampled prints that he could find. He would be joined by Bob Titmus, and after two weeks of searching the area, DeHinden and Bosburg local Ivan Marks discovered over a thousand gigantic tracks leading to, from, and across a nearby river. And this is when Krantz would join the fray and uh, a little later, Roger Patterson. Just a whole smattering of players in Bossburg. Fun fact, also in 1969, an ordinance was passed in Skamania County, Washington, making it illegal to kill a Bigfoot, making it a felony to do so. It would be changed. It would be revised in '84. And downgraded to just a gross misdemeanor, I think. But still, that's no small thing either. (laughs) Can we do something similar for hoaxers? Like, you know, y'all are making this way harder than it has to be. Now, unfortunately, Roger Patterson would die at the very young age of 39 in 1972. I, I was absolutely shocked when I learned that. Just so friggin' sad. I don't know. That kind of information just came out of left field for me. So I don't know. It's sad. Uh in that same year, Ivan Marks, who is uh, people people got things to say about Marks. Um, I don't know if yet if we're gonna get into what he may or may not have hoaxed during this season, but anyway, this guy uh, would cast a very unique handprint in northeastern Washington. The fingers all point straight down with all five digits going in at the same angle, supporting the theory that the Sasquatch does not sport an opposable or, at the very least, a fully opposable thumb, and this has been noted in other handprint casts as well as descriptions given in stories of encounters that took place close enough to see the figure's hands. Um, Oh, on a hot August night in 1976, a group of Whitehall New York teens were out for a joyride along a bare road. As they zoomed down, they passed by something or someone strange standing off to the side. They agreed Hmm, that was really odd. What the heck was that? Let's flip it around and get a better look. As they turned their vehicle around to get a better look, they made out a seven-foot-tall hairy creature standing on two legs with glowing red eyes. Now, were the eyes actually glowing, or was this the eye shine oft-reported? I don't know. We will discuss eye shine later. The creature let out a very loud scream, something they would describe akin to a pig-like squeal. So, this was all just very terrifying, and they sped off to report to the police in Whitehall what they had just witnessed. And police officer Brian Goslin, the brother of one of the terrified teens, took their story seriously enough to head on out to the area to investigate on the following night. When he arrived, he found the spot the boys had reported the creature was standing when they had spotted it. And Officer Gosselin swept his flashlight to and fro and then stopped when it landed on the creature in question. There it was, not 30 feet away, hands raised to shield its eyes from the bright light. Gosselin estimated its height to be over seven feet tall and weighing approximately 400 pounds. He described a very muscular body with a coat matted with mud and sticks. He later said it looked somewhat human, but it definitely wasn't. The sighting would end when the creature turned and disappeared into the woods. Now what's really interesting about the Whitehall, a Bear Road incident. This was not the only strange thing reported at the time. There was a major UFO flap taking place in and around the area at that time of the sighting. Police stations were fielding calls about sightings of lights in the sky and landed metal spheres in yards and and even strange-looking occupants of the landed saucers. And there were more calls about additional sightings of a huge, hairy monster roaming the streets and backyards of residents' homes. And this was all taking place within the span of like a week or two. But the amount of high strangeness that took place in general in the area is just really kind of intriguing. And I've I've linked a YouTube clip from Small Town Monsters in the show notes if you are curious about this case and the other strange encounters and creature sightings that took place there. In 1982... Paul Freeman found numerous sets of tracks with dermal ridges southeast of Walla Walla, Washington, in the Mill Creek area of the Blue Mountains. Okay, so from what I am gathering, Freeman was a, a rather divisive character in the Bigfoot world. Reliable folks like Grover Krantz and Dr. Meldrum found the dermal ridge detail in a lot of Freeman casts to be rather Convincing. And both went into extreme detail in their books about why this feature is so important when considering it from an anatomical expert, primate locomotive expert, fingerprint analysis expert perspective. And I have to agree. Um, however, researchers like Renee DeHinden and Bob Titmus were. They more or less called BS on a lot of Freeman's evidence. And there was question regarding the authenticity of Freeman's findings and the luck that he seemed to have collecting said findings. Some people are just lucky, yo. (laughs) You know, some folks uh, experience the paranormal on a regular basis throughout their lives. And then there's some that just never experience it, not even once. So. Freeman's luck doesn't really faze me, uh, especially considering he was spending many days a week, multiple hours a day, searching out in remote areas of the forest, overwhelmingly stacking the odds in his favor. He didn't just stumble upon this stuff. He was specifically looking for it. Over the course of his pursuit, he would have... uh, his own encounters. He, w- he would report personal encounters with these things. He would find and cast numerous tracks. He got some handprints. He got a knuckle print. He got a butt print in 93. I mean, we may not have the body of a Sasquatch, but if you ever want to see inside of one, you should check out the cast of his 93 butt print. He even captured a purported Sasquatch on film in 92. And I have watched the film many, many times. And the reaction to the film is unsurprisingly divided. And all I'm going to say about that, and sincerely, no disrespect, though this is going to sound sound like that, but I'm trying to prove a point here. The man could not act to save his life. I recently heard this played uh, on another podcast, and if you have seen his or heard his ice cream commercial, you would know this to be fact. I feel like I have enough acting experience under my belt, like I know what to look for. But the this guy's reaction um, in his '92 film is is one of genuine surprise and excitement, and maybe a little bit of fear. If it's a performance, it's good. It's good. That has been my takeaway. But Freeman wasn't the only one finding very detailed tracks in 82, though. Deputy Sheriff Dennis Harryford, with other officers, was out to investigate some massive footprints found by loggers in Grays Harbor County, Washington. Two very distinct and clear full-length tracks were found initially, with more found about a quarter mile away. The prints found there appeared to double their stride, leaving a series of half tracks up to nine feet between them. My thought is uh, a very large something began to sprint for some reason suddenly. The prints measured roughly 15 inches long by six inches wide and sunk an inch and a half into the ground at their deepest. And these are of special interest due to both the detail, of course, but the inferred position of the flexion point of this and many other prints right in the middle of the flat foot. Human feet just do not work this way. The feet of other ape species do, though. 1995, Matt Moneymaker founded the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, a little Sasquatch field of study history there for you, Janice Carter Coy first told her story in 1996. She claimed that her family had had a habituation-type relationship with a family of Bigfoot, spanning back even before she was born, and starting when her grandfather had happened onto a hurt adolescent Sasquatch while out clearing trees. He would take the creature home overnight. Its parents would show up and wreak havoc on some barn doors and take their son, but later the parents seemed to disappear, and the young Sasquatch would return and begin following Janice's father around the premises and accepting table scraps that he would sneak out to him and also take shelter in their basement during excessively bad weather. This un was named Fox and would continue living in the area, and once he stepped into a more patriarch role, brought members of his own family along. And Janice wouldn't learn about Fox until she was 7 or 8. She was immediately ridiculed for her claims. However, though some of her details are a bit eyebrow-raising, many of the behaviors and physical descriptions that she was relaying back in '96, when some of these features still were not all that well-known, are now commonly reported in Sasquatch encounters and observations. The first partial body imprint of a Sasquatch was discovered September 22nd in 2000 near Mount Adams in southern Washington state. This is called the Skookum cast. This discovery took place during an expedition conducted by the BFRO, At 3 a.m., fruit was left as bait in the middle of what has been reported as a muddy wallow, but described by Dr. Meldrum, uh, one of the scientists who would be investigating following the discovery as an area of moist, loamy soil. So just, just very conducive to footprint capture. Members of the BFRO would check the trap just three hours after setting the fruit and make the discovery. Aside from elk, deer, and an assortment of other footprints seen outside the perimeter of this bait trap, no other footprints were found. However, in the middle of this muddy patch near the bait trap, the distinct impressions of what appears to be a left forearm, hip of a pronounced buttocks, thigh, and heel with partial Achilles tendon can be seen. Hair striations were found throughout. Bits and crumbles of fruit with what looked like squarish teeth marks were found left behind. Ridge detail can be seen on the heel. Many hairs were extracted, with most found to match the kinds of animals that left any tracks seen in the area. However, there were remaining hairs that couldn't readily be identified. The biomedical research scientist, Dr. Henner Farenbach, who analyzed the hair samples, would identify these as closely resembling other samples he had collected from other Sasquatch cases. And The obvious conclusion of anyone who uh, studied this cast was that whatever had left it was substantial in weight and size. This discovery kind of sent me, uh, yo, it's the heel and Achilles tendon for me, because I don't know what I'm looking at when I'm staring at most of these cast photos. I'm still at the stage where most footprint casts just look like big blobs to me. But the imprint of the heel and tendon is abundantly clear to me. A total novice will look at it and know exactly what it is. It's unmistakable. So I'm going to mention this next case briefly, only to note that it happened. I want to take more time later to explore this creature. In the same year, on the extreme opposite of the country, a woman who wished to remain anonymous would send two photos she had taken in her backyard, uh, located near the Mioca River in Florida, to the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office with a note that included the following information. Something had been stealing apples from her back porch, from the looks of it, her husband thought it was an orangutan. It stank something awful. She wanted to remain anonymous. She took the enclosed photos on the third night while investigating the repetition of deep whoomp noises. And was anyone missing an orangutan? And the photos show a very large creature with shaggy hair and eye shine. It has a a distinctly primate look to it. And this cutie is known as the Miyaka skunk ape. A trail cam captured photos of what many claim are the images of a juvenile Sasquatch in Pennsylvania in 2007. And the man who got the photos was not looking for Sasquatch. He was just looking for any deer in the area in preparation for hunting season. His motion sensor camera would snap two photos 30 seconds apart of a strange-looking figure with black fur bent over a salt lick. Proponents are calling it a Sasquatch. Folks who have analyzed the photos say, yes, it does look primate. Those skeptical of the photos are saying it's a mangy bear. If you want your heart absolutely torn from your chest, go down the mangy bear image search rabbit hole that I did to have something for comparison. If you don't, don't. Um, you guys don't need my opinion on this one, but if you are curious, take a look for yourself. Pay special attention to the back foot in the second photo. I, that told me all I needed to know about this one. In 2012, a man named Max Roy was walking his dog along the shore of Cottage Grove Reservoir. He ran into a passerby who told him about some Bigfoot tracks they'd just seen nearby. Roy would go take a look. He reached out to a Bigfooter named Toby Johnson, who, after inspecting the tracks, would contact Cliff Barrickman. The trackway discovered consisted of 122 prints, Mr. Berkman would cast 72 of them. Photos and the casts of the prints show clear and unique evidence of living feet in motion rather than static prints. This case is called the London Trackway, and it took place in Oregon. We will wrap our Bigfoot timeline today with one other noteworthy occurrence of 2012. The Sasquatch Genome Project... Though controversial and widely criticized by the scientific community at large, was a scientific endeavor to prove the existence of Bigfoot through analysis of its DNA. According to Dr. Melba Ketchum and her team, following analysis of samples of hair, tissue, and other biologics collected, they concluded the samples contained DNA of Sasquatch. Like I said, it's controversial. There were... Problematic aspects, but I find it a rather fascinating feature of Bigfoot history. Uh, There is a lot to the study and what went along with that, and then the rest of the internet that will happily point out all of the problems that they found with it. So, yeah, so is the Bigfoot life. Um, I am including the link to uh, Sasquatch. Genomeproject.org had to remember there, <laughs> sasquatchgenomeproject.org, below where you can view the study and uh, any of the supplemental materials for yourself. We may be wrapping on 2012, but that does not mean everything Bigfoot just stopped. On the contrary, it has been alive and well and still going strong today. Don't believe me? Check out resources where folks can and do submit claims of their experiences, such as BigfootMap.com, BFRO.net, R forward slash Bigfoot on Reddit, BigfootForums.com, and uh, the Sasquatch Chronicles podcast. Constant sightings and encounters taking place. Listen to and watch any interview of the professional investigators and researchers still going strong coming off of the new investigations talking about the new evidence and science because there is tons of new evidence occurring on the daily to be talked about and considered. The footprint has had quite the journey as we can see from today's show. It has come so far thanks to the people who cared to just take a look at the damn things, to notice the things about them that no one else was seeing, and to ask the question that continues to light the fire of curiosity in the Bigfoot field and keeps them marching forward and carrying the torch. What are people seeing, and what is leaving the footprints? Was this the entire history of Sasquatch? Heck no. (laughs) Not even close. The main point of my history deep dives is to make the listeners start to think about the phenomenon in a different context as something that is not simply a modern day urban legend, a, a scary story we came up with yesteryear. And it helps me and hopefully you guys to put this phenomenon into a different context that... It's a continuation of something that came before, that there are patterns that can be seen over the course of centuries, spanning many different cultures and locales of this earth. Over the ups and downs and ins and outs of human history, this phenomenon remained steady throughout. It's the same thing folks were talking about in early indigenous cultures. We can question whether it's the same thing folks were talking about in medieval times. I think it's pretty spooky how similar it is. But this phenomenon has history. And it has not changed with the times over the course of that history. And that's something those skeptical of any of the phenomena that I talk about on this show cannot account for, as I like to say, and often do. There's just something to it, man. That is a wrap on today's History of Bigfoot. Join me, if you please, for a final note. Clearly, those who have most closely examined the footprints attributed to Sasquatch are the least inclined to simply dismiss them offhandedly as hoaxes dr jeff meldrum i have no quarrel with the skeptics who justifiably doubt all unusual reports until they are adequately documented my main quarrel is with those who maintain that bigfoot does not exist a priori dr grover Krantz. i don't go around trying to convince people that sasquatch exists what i'm looking for is a forum to explain and tell the evidence we have and say it is worthy of scientific scrutiny John Bindernagel. Those (laughs) clodhoppers! Science is the pursuit of the unknown. Now maybe the scientists think there is nothing unknown since they know it all and therefore they don't have to pursue it. I don't know. It looks like the scientists get up every morning and pray, please God let me go through another day without a new thought. Renee DeHinden. (laughs) In In 1825, French naturalist Cuvier doubted that there were any new large four-legged animals remaining to be discovered. In 1825, how much of the world do you think he had access to? Could afford to travel to? Had personally explored for himself? Had he been everywhere? What a big assertion to make. If you listen to the last deep dive, you obviously are aware that he was wrong. On today's episode, we've seen a few of the names of the Bigfoot world. Initially, self-proclaimed skeptics turned avid hunters of what they once assumed ridiculous. Something shifted when they took the time to just look at the evidence Green, Krantz, even Dr. Meldrum was far more skeptical at one point. And this happens continuously throughout the history, not just in the names I mentioned today, because they were compelled by the evidence, because they were willing to look at it. All I'm reading now are Bigfoot books. I'm on the online sites, I'm on the skeptical sites, I'm listening to the podcasts. The question that keeps coming up, how can people still believe in Bigfoot? Easy. Now I'm beginning to see how they do. But it requires an open mind to the evidence, of which there is more than plenty. We will be looking at that evidence on our next deep dive in just a couple of weeks it will always be easier to be a fanatic skeptic than an open-minded one Kristen Amanda 2023 (laughs) follow the show at Paranorm Girl Pod on all socials and YouTube listeners October is almost upon us which means Halloween is almost here we here at PGP Studios recognize that Halloween is in fact the best holiday and have done something special for it every year since the beginning. This Halloween will be the show's third. And I think it's high time we go live, baby! A live Halloween celebration! A night of special guests, giveaways spooky stories? Woo! I will announce the date and time of the live stream on our next episode. But in the meantime, hear ye, hear ye, listeners. I am putting the first call out there today for your spooky tale to be read on that stream. Submit your personal encounter with the unexplained and mysterious. Share your favorite haunted family lore. I will read it live. Shoot your story to paranormgirlpod at gmail.com. Please note somewhere in the subject line or anywhere in the body that it is for the live stream. I I need, I want, but I need your permission to read it, y'all. And stay tuned next week for that date and time. That is a wrap. Join me next week for a conversation with cryptozoologist and host of the Fedora Files, Gregory Fedora. It's a fun one. Until then, stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.